So I have a question. If a construction team, if, they, if they're going out and they're setting out to, to build a, a building or a house, what do they use what, to guide them to in, in that construction? A blueprint, right? A blueprint's actually, it's a little dated. They use what's called a white print now, which is uh, more, uh, it's done on a computer. But I'm gonna use, continue using the word blueprint for the sake of familiarity. What is a blueprint? Well, a blueprint is a, a two-dimensional drawing by an engineer, and this drawing gives specific measurements. This drawing is needed to request permits for building. Without this blueprint, the, the details of the house or building, it'd be off. I, I did a little bit of research about, about buildings this week. It was kind of interesting. Uh, I went to a site where construction workers, they ask each other questions so that they can, you know, grow in, in, in knowledge of how they do things. And, and one person asked the question, do any of you all actually follow the blueprints? Many, many people responded with annoyance and irritated about the fact that somebody would even ask such a question. Of course you have to follow the blueprints. One person responded, we do custom work and have prints for even the most simple of jobs. I usually follow them to the T. Another person said, Build it different from the plane and see what the customer says when they see the one detail that they really liked and is not there. So if, if we're going to build something that's as, as complex as a, a skyscraper or even a house, a blueprint helps to get the job done. If you don't follow the plan, things will be off. I want to ask you this morning, what do you think is God's design? What is God's blueprint for our spiritual growth? What is God's blueprint for sanctification? There's a popular Christian motto out there, and it says, it's let go and, and let God. And often when that, when that phrase is applied to sanctification, it's assumed that we should treat God as sort of uh, like a spiritual cruise control button that we hit. It's the idea that we need to just sit back, relax, and, and allow God to take us to our next destination in sanctification. I was recently, I got on YouTube and I watched a, a video of this self-driving Tesla and the picture had this guy he's sitting in the passenger seat and he's like sleeping in the seat uh, while the car is driving him down the highway. Is that picture, is that illustration of this man sitting in the passenger seat, sleeping in his Tesla, being drove, is that how God grows us? Is God a cruise control button? Well, then how do we grow? How do we become people who are so generous that we're willing to give up our time, money, energy, even to people who despise us? How do we become like that? What's the blueprint 
to become that free. Let's look at our text to find the answer. You might have noticed that we've skipped verses 1 to 18 in chapter 11, and and I've done that for a reason. The main reason, because if you read the story, it's a retelling of what we've already seen in chapter 10. We saw that a few weeks ago. Some of it's even word to word. What happens in verses 1 to 18 of chapter 11, Peter tells the Jewish Christians about uh, what happened in chapter 10, about the circumstances surrounding the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit. Uh, like I said, a lot of it's even word for word, so I decided not to, to cover that ground again, but there is something we can learn from verses 1 to 18. And because, and what happens with there is that the Jews, they were first, they were upset at Peter for even eating with Gentiles, but when they found out that God had given them the Holy Spirit and accepted them, the Jews accepted the Gentiles. And so what we learn from that is when God accepts a person, we accept a person. It doesn't matter their nationality or their race, we accept them as family. Soteriology leads to ecclesiology. Now let's get into our text. So look at the, the first half of verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So what's being said there? Why is that detail? Why is that so important? Don't worry, I'm not going to call on you, but by a show of hands, this, this may be difficult. Who remembers all the way back to Acts 1 and what I said was sort of the thesis statement for Acts, the book of Acts? Anybody remember? Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe two hands, I see three, maybe at most. Four. <laughs> well, that obviously means we need to hear it again. Um, so, if you want to know the outline for the book of Acts, if you want to know how the book is going to progress, meditate on Acts 1, verses eight, verse 8. Listen. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the apostles are supposed to be Jesus' witnesses. They're supposed to share the gospel with the entire known world beginning in Jerusalem. And they started off very well. The apostles, they went to the temple daily, and we've seen that thousands and thousands of Jews had come to believe in the Messiah. They come to believe in Jesus. But for three years, they're supposed to go to the whole world, but for three years they stay in Jerusalem. They never left. They don't leave. Why is that? Why do they remain in Jerusalem for so long when they have a mission to the world? Not exactly sure. There's no definite answer to that. There's lots of speculation. I have a couple reasons for why I believe that they were 
very comfortable where they were at in Jerusalem. They were in a place where there, there's thousands of Christians. Jerusalem's an exciting place. Lots of places to, for confrontation at the temple. I just simply think they didn't want to leave because they were so comfortable. Just as we often choose comfort over obedience, and especially with evangelism, I think the early church wanted to stay where they were. The other reason I think they stayed in Jerusalem is because they still, it seems like they were still convinced that the gospel was only for, for Jews and proselytes. And we can see that when Peter doesn't even want to go into Cornelius' home. And it can be seen in, in chapter 10 when, and in 11, at the beginning, verses 1 to 18, when the Jews are surprised that the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles who weren't circumcised. So there are a couple of reasons they wanted to, they stayed in Jerusalem for so long. At the very least, we might be able to say they were stuck. They hit the spiritual cruise control button and were staying where they were. Why do I say that? Why do I think that they were being comfortable? Verse 19 tells us that they eventually leave Jerusalem. It says they travel as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So yes, they, they do leave Jerusalem and they go uh, up into the northern regions of the, the ancient, uh, of, of where they were at uh, above Israel. They go north into to these areas in Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And they share the gospel with Gentiles. But look at what it took for them to obey. Look at the beginning of verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. When you see that word in your Bible, because or for, circle it. It's not a throwaway word. It's a very important word. The word because is a grounding statement. It tells you the reason why somebody believes something, why Paul believes something. It tells you the reason why something happened. It's a very important indicator as to the closets coming up. In verse 19, it's telling us the reason that the Jews, Jewish Christians, left Jerusalem. They left because of persecution. And specifically, it's the, the persecution that happened uh, after Stephen was stoned to death. Can you all remember back to chapter 7 with the stoning of Stephen? Wasn't too long ago. I see some heads nodding. After Stephen was stoned, Luke states that Saul and the religious leaders, they began to arrest and persecute the Christians in Jerusalem. And so that, that led to many Jewish Christians leaving Jerusalem at that time. They fled. We, had, we saw this story happening back in chapter 7 and 8. So what we see is that the Jewish Christians, they didn't want to leave Jerusalem out of obedience and share the gospel out of obedience. They didn't leave on their own volition. They left Jerusalem because of the threat of imprisonment and death. And at the end of verse 19, we can see that 
even after they did leave Jerusalem, most of them only shared the gospel with other Jews. But, verse 20 says, it's not all that happened. Some people did share the gospel with Gentiles. It says that men from Cyprus and Cyrene preached Jesus to the Hellenists. We, we've talked about the Hellenists before. The Hellenists are uh, simply talking about people from the Hellenization period when the, the Greeks uh, controlled the entire known world at the time and Greek philosophy, Greek language, Greek culture spread throughout the known world, the ancient Near East. And because of that, many people spoke Greek. And, 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 there, and, and here it's talking about uh, Hellenistic Gentiles. So for our purposes, that's important. They were Gentiles. And because the hand of the Lord was with them, verse 21, many of these Jews or Gentiles believed the gospel and the church at Antioch was created. So when we put it all together, what was verses 19 to 21 about? What we've seen here is that God used the suffering of the church to lead them to obey Jesus' command to be witnesses to the world. That's taken the thesis statement from 1.8 that Jesus wants them to go everywhere and applying it here. It took persecution in Jerusalem to bring the gospel to Antioch. Point one, God uses suffering to stimulate obedience. God uses suffering to stimulate obedience. Is anyone in here a gardener? Anybody a gardener? Oh, I see more hands come up for this than anything else I've said today. I don't consider myself one, but when I lived in Louisville, I had a, a little flower bed going on, some, some cool little flower bed going on. But at some point, there were some very, very stubborn weeds that started growing up in this flower bed. And I remember the roots were so strong and they were so deep, it took a lot of digging and pulling at these, these weeds to get it out. I eventually, I had to go to Lowe's and get some tools to get it out. That's how we become as well. We become like weeds. Our roots for comfort can go so deep, can become so strong that we're essentially stuck. Our default mode when faced with comfort or obedience is to choose comfort. We don't like sharing the gospel. We don't like talking to friends and especially strangers about Jesus because it makes us uncomfortable. This isn't, this isn't only evangelism. There are many examples where obeying God means being uncomfortable. And so God uses suffering to spur us on and push us on to obedience. Suffering is like a cultivator in the great gardener of souls, the hands of the great gardener of souls. God uses suffering to loosen up the hard soil of our hearts. He uses suffering to uproot our deep love for comfort and to spur us on to obedience. Hebrews says that even Jesus, Jesus learned obedience through suffering. 
And, when he, and he says he was made perfect through suffering. That doesn't mean that there was a point where Jesus was disobedient. It means that suffering was the means for Jesus to continue accepting increasingly difficult calls to obedience. I'll say that again. Suffering was the means for Jesus to continue accepting increasingly difficult calls to obedience. During Jesus' life, he, he had to endure mocking. He had to endure sleepless nights. He had nowhere to lay his head often. He hungered, he thirsted. And these situations would get harder and harder, but it's what God called him to do. And he obeyed. And it would get harder again. Something else would come up. It would get harder again, and he would obey. And God used this increased suffering, this increased suffering that happened to Jesus, he used this as a means for Jesus to obey and go to the cross. That's what Hebrews means when it says that he was made perfect through suffering. Jesus became perfect, not in the sense that he was ever imperfect, but his obedience became perfect because God used suffering as a means to make Jesus obedient to the point of death. Jesus chose obedience over comfort. Where are you stuck? Where are you choosing comfort over obedience? Is there suffering in your life? With the, the coronavirus going on with America, it sometimes feels like it's just going to implode on itself all the riots and the looting and the animosity happening towards one another, the increasing persecution of the church, maybe God's trying to wake us up. We are refined in the furnace of affliction, and we will grow there in the furnace of affliction more in one day than we would in a hundred days of comfort and prosperity and ease. Embrace suffering. Allow suffering to awake you from slumbering. Let adversity produce maturity. So the first piece of God's blueprint for sanctification, of his blueprint for spiritual growth, is sanctification. Or, sorry, is suffering, sorry. The first piece of God's blueprint for sanctification, for spiritual growth, is suffering. So we saw that it took suffering for the early church to take the gospel to Antioch. But now, the church, now that the church has been established in Antioch, how exactly is this new church supposed to thrive? What is needed for this new church to grow? So we're going to continue in our text. And what we see here is that Barnabas, he leaves Jerusalem, goes to Antioch, and he he builds up this new church. There are many reasons they might have sent Barnabas there. One is that Antioch was a key city in a key location where there was a lot of traffic. Lots of people passed through there. I've heard somebody compare it to uh, 
oh, what's that main uh, subway station, Grand Central Station in, in New York City, just everybody passes through there. That's what's happening in Antioch. So that's why they had to, to send some of the bigger guns there. Who was Barnabas? Luke describes him in verse 24 as a good man and full of the Holy Spirit. But there was something else Barnabas was really, really known for in the early church. Does anyone know what that is? He was mainly known for being an encourager. Chapter 4 in Acts describes Barnabas as being an encourager, and actually that's what the early church called Barnabas, was the son, his name means son of encouragement. What would you expect the son of encouragement to do? To encourage people, right? And that's what he goes there. He leaves Jerusalem, he goes to Antioch, and he starts encouraging this young church. Verse 23 says, He saw the grace of God given to them, and he exhorted them. Exhort means to strongly encourage. Certainly, he's teaching them about the great salvation that they've received. He's encouraging them to, to stay faithful to the Lord. If we're honest with ourselves, our default mode is to be petty, to be negative, to nitpick. We like, we like focusing on things that bother us about other people. We, we make subtle and snarky remarks and comments to each other and tear each other down. And this is fine. Many of you have told me I'm not always the best at pronouncing words. You can tell who told me that. <laughs> I can't say naked, for instance. And that's fine. I, I can take the criticism. It, it, uh, I got thick skin. The point is that we live in a world that's full of negativity, full of criticism, and, and people are naturally already discouraged. People are depressed. People are hurting. And that's part of what it is to live in a fallen world. But we are redeemed people and we have a great gospel. And that means we should be people who are constantly looking to build other people up. It doesn't mean that there's never a time to, to vent about somebody. But what it does mean is that we should be the kind of people that want to leave our house every day, and especially on Sunday, and say, who can I build up? How can I build somebody up today? We're going to see in a chapter or two that this was a typical pattern for the early church. It says they shared scriptures with each other to encourage one another. The book of Hebrews it tells us to encourage one another daily. We all know people in our lives, people at this church, where we all gravitate towards these people because 
their encouraging spirit is just infectious. Conversation with them, having a conversation with these kinds of people, it's restoring, it's life-giving. And thank God for Christian men and women who are just wellsprings of life to be around. We should all strive to be like these people. We should all strive to be like Barnabas, an encourager. Who do you want to be? Do you want to be the kind of person that people avoid because you drain them? Or do you want to be known as someone who's constantly building up the body? And have you ever noticed that the the negative and, and bickering people are usually the most unhappy people? while those who encourage others are usually seem to be the most happy? That's not a coincidence. That's because if, whenever we're focused on being negative, when, we have, when we're discouraging, we tear people down, we have this self-centered mindset. And, and we're thinking about how other, how other people aren't serving us and how they aren't meeting our own standards. The act of encouraging, it forces us to look outside of ourselves and to focus on building someone else up. And that's the reason these people are often joyful because they're being who God designed them to be. We weren't meant to be self-centered. We're meant to serve others. We've been talking about God's blueprint for sanctification, but a, a free side point today is that God's blueprint for joy is focusing on other people. It's better to give than to receive, Jesus said. So encourage other people, not only to lift them up, but to lift yourself up as well. And if you're building someone else up and they're building you up, that doesn't mean that life is always going to be easy. But it certainly makes the difficulties that we all face a whole lot more manageable to bear. So as Paul says, let's stir up one another to love and good deeds. This church in Antioch, it didn't only need encouragement. Verse 25 tells us that Barnabas left Antioch, traveled north to Tarsus to go find Saul. Why did he do that? Why did he go find Saul? Simply because Barnabas knew that Saul was brilliant and that he was a gifted teacher. Saul was taught by Gamaliel. Saul was passionate about the theology that he learned and the theology that he taught. And so, Saul, or so Barnabas brought Saul to Antioch to strengthen the congregation to establish them in solid biblical doctrine. We can see this in verse 26. It says, For a whole year they, meaning Saul and Barnabas, met with the church and taught a great many people. And we know from Paul's letters, this wasn't always simple teaching. It's definitely not simple teaching. Scholars, they'll spend their entire lives plumbing the depths of what Paul means. We spent 2,000 years trying to understand everything Paul means, and we still don't know. Saul taught complex 
theological topics and doctrines. So let's, let's not always strive to wade in the shallows. Solid, deep biblical doctrine is the anchor of the soul and the means God uses to establish and sanctify us. So we've seen the second point in verses 22 to 26. And it's that the second and third part of God's blueprint for our spiritual growth is encouragement and solid biblical teaching. We have any Spider-Man fans in attendance? Tough crowd. (laughs) Well, in the movie and the comic book series, there's a there's a young guy named Peter Parker. Oh, thanks, Jeff. Jeff's a fan. So, There's a young guy named Peter Parker. And Peter's portrayed as being nerdy. He's portrayed as being weak. But something happens to him in the movie that changes all of that. In the comics, it changes all of that. What was that? He's bitten by a radioactive spider. And when that happens, he finds out that the spider gives him all kinds of powers. He's much stronger. He's agile. He can take out several enemies on his own. To put it simply, coming in contact with that radioactive spider, radioactive spider changed him. When we come to the Word of God... When we hear and believe solid biblical doctrine and teaching, we may not get superhuman powers, but we are changed. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that we all, listen to this, this is amazing, we all, beholding the glory of the Lord, he's talking about Jesus, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And it's precisely because the Bible teaches this that I, every single week, pray for the Holy Spirit to help us see the glory of Jesus Christ through the preaching of the Word. The author of Hebrews, he knows that too. If you ever read through Hebrews, you'll notice every time he explains some complex doctrine, he always says afterwards, consider Jesus, consider Jesus, consider Jesus, consider Jesus. And then he shows them why Jesus is an example, the perfect example for everything he's trying to teach them. Preaching, because we are transformed by seeing the glory of Jesus, preaching is supposed to be about showing people Jesus. I I try to give a lot of examples of Jesus in my teaching, and I'll spend a lot of time on sermons and Bible studies because I understand that if I can help you see Jesus in a deeper way, if I'm faithful to the text and the Holy Spirit shows you his glory, you will become more like him. Just as Peter Parker was changed by coming into contact With a spider, you will be changed by coming in contact with the glory of the Lord. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And so God, he uses the means of encouragement 
in the word for us to grow. Where do I see that the Antioch, the church in Antioch grew from these means? Where do I see that? How can we gauge that? Verse 27 teaches that a prophet named Agabus, he came up from Jerusalem to Antioch. If you guys remember, we talked earlier in Acts that the gifts of the Holy Spirit, a lot of the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit were less common or or sorry, they were more common because the word of God hadn't been established yet. And so that meant there was a lot of prophets in the early church. And this prophet, Agabus, he prophesied that there would be a great famine to come over the entire Greco-Roman world. And because at this point in time, at this point in the narrative, much of the church, the Christian church is in Judea, in the southern part of Israel, that was the area, the place that Saul and Barnabas was concerned about with this famine. They know I got brothers and sisters down in Judea, Jewish brothers and sisters in Judea that are going to be starving, they're going to be having a hard time. That's where I'm worried about. They were concerned with the poor Jewish Christians there. Verse 29 says, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And so they want to send relief there to these Jewish Christians. And verse 30 says that that's exactly what happened. The Gentile Christians in Antioch gave up money and food to Saul and Barnabas to help the Jewish Christians in Judea. The Gentile Christians gave relief, money and food, to the Jewish Christians in Judea. On a side note, if you're interested, uh, later, go back and read Galatians 2, 1 to 10, which is what Evan read today, and, I, and compare that with this story we're looking at, and it seems Paul is talking about that same event. Here's a question. Why would a Gentile want to help out a Jew? The Jews despised the Gentiles. The Gentiles were like dogs. They were like pigs to the Jews. Gentiles were unclean, disgusting people, and they weren't even worthy to sit at the same table as a Jew and have a meal. Yet here, they're giving up their own possessions to a people that don't like them. Why would they do that? What would motivate Gentiles to do such a thing? There's a few different answers in our text, but the heart of the answer is in the first clause of verse 23. When he, that is Barnabas, came and saw the grace of God. The church of Antioch, they received the grace of God. The simple reason they gave to the Jews is because grace begets grace. Love inspires love. And the Gentiles receive grace from their salvation. They receive grace through God's blueprint of encouragement and solid teaching. 
And they were a church that was ready to radically love even a people who despised them. It's because these Gentiles had such a great eternal reward that they were able to freely give up temporary goods. This is what Paul was, what he was talking about in Corinthians. The same sort of thing happens. He's talking about in Corinthians, and he's, he's going around, he's collecting. This is his third missionary journey. He's going around, he's collecting, offering for the Jews. And he told the Gentiles in Corinth. He says, the Jews, they, they've brought you guys spiritual riches. So you ought to provide them with the world's goods that they so desperately need right now. God used the ordinary means of encouragement and teaching to grow this church at Antioch. God's blueprint for spiritual growth is ordinary means. So for any of us out there who have hit the cruise control button on our Christianity, who are sleeping in the passenger's side as the thinking God's going to take us to our next destination. Let me ask you a question. How does a garden grow? Is it not through the ordinary means of the sun and rain? How are people healed today? Is it not through the means of doctors and modern medicine? Yes, God could perfectly, it's in his power to let you just sit back and change you instantly if you wanted. But he's not like the genies that we see in the movies. He doesn't just snap his fingers and instantly transform you. We have a God that uses means. And if we want to grow spiritually, we have to follow God's blueprint that he's given us in his word. In order to grow, we have to make ourselves come into contact with the ordinary means of encouragement and the word. You want to grow in obedience? You want to be brought out of your comfort zone? Embrace suffering. You want to freely give up your material wealth to those who need it because you have a better and lasting eternal possession? Be an encourager. And be around people who will encourage you. Go to the Word. Sit under deep teaching and seek to find the glory of Jesus Christ as if it were silver and gold, as Proverbs says. Seek the glory of Jesus in the word as if there's a million dollars waiting there for you when you find it. And that glory of Jesus is worth far more than a million dollars. If you're here or you're listening in and you've never repented from sin and trusted in Jesus, I plead with you to do so today. If you have even a little bit of a desire in your heart to come to know Jesus more, don't suppress that. Follow that desire. 
I understand from my own experience that I used to sit under and listen to preachers present Jesus on the occasional time I went to church. And I knew that as I'm listening to a preacher talk to me and and present Jesus to me, I knew that even if I wanted it just a little bit, I knew that I wanted my sin even more. And having to give that up was a hard thing to, to come to terms with. I know that giving up sin and indulging and in pleasing the flesh for Jesus is a very difficult thing for you to contemplate. It's actually an impossible thing for you to do apart from the Spirit of God. But I urge you this morning to allow the Holy Spirit to work on your heart. Invite him in. Ask him to help you see even a glimpse of the glory of Jesus, help you see how much greater it is than any pleasure you've ever experienced in sin. We talked about Gentiles giving up material goods to those who despise them. Jesus gave up everything for people who hated him. He left the glories of heaven to come here and purchase the forgiveness of sins through his sacrificial death on the cross. And your sins will be forgiven, paid for, done, if you just repent and believe the gospel. Growth is it's often very slow, so slow, in fact, that we usually don't see it happening at all. And in fact, I, I agree with this. One pastor says that sometimes it feels like we're actually getting worse when we're actually getting better because we see more of our sin. But God's, wor- God's word, it promises us if we persevere in the ordinary means of grace, if we follow God's blueprint for change and sanctification, not as a duty, but with eagerness, God will faithfully use those means to make us become like his son. Just as he uses rain to make the grass grow. Let's pray. Father, we know you're a God who can do anything you want. You can transform people in an instant. And the moment we die, we will be transformed in an instant. Your word says it's because we will see the son as he is. We know that while we're here on earth, you have chosen to use ordinary means to redeem us in terms of growth and sanctification. We pray, Father, that we would have hearts churned by your cultivation on our hearts, ripe soil ready to hear your word, ripe soil ready to be encouraged, ready to encourage others. Ripe soil, ready to embrace suffering, to become more like your son. I pray that for every single one of us, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.